Chapter Ten of From the Deep Woods to Civilization by Charles A. Eastman, Ohiesa. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten at the Nation's Capital. My work for the International Committee of Young Men's Christian Associations brought me into close association with some of the best products of American civilization. I believe that such men as Richard Morse, John R. Mott, Wilbur Messer, Charles Ober and his brother, and others, have through their organization and personal influence contributed vitally to the stability and well-being of the nation. Among the men on the International Committee whom I met at this time, and who gave me a strong impression of what they stood for, were Colonel John J. McCook, David Murray, Thomas Cochran, and Cornelius Vanderbilt. I have said some hard things of American Christianity but in these I referred to the nation as a whole and the majority of its people, not to the individual Christians. Had I not known some such, I should long ago have gone back to the woods. I wished very much to resume my profession of medicine, but I was as far as ever from having the capital for a start, and we had now three children. At this juncture I was confronted by what seemed a hopeful opportunity. Some of the leading men of the Sioux, among them my own brother, Reverend John Eastman, came to me for a consultation. They argued that I was the man of their tribe best fitted to look after their interests in Washington. They had begun to realize that certain of these interests were of great importance, involving millions of dollars. Although not a lawyer, they gave me power of attorney to act for them in behalf of these claims and to appear as their representative before the Indian Bureau, the President, and Congress. After signing the necessary papers, I went to Washington, where I urged our rights throughout two sessions and most of a third, while during the summers I still traveled among the Sioux. I learned that scarcely one of our treaties with the United States had been carried out in good faith in all of its provisions. After the early friendship treaties, which involved no cession of land, the first was signed in 1824. By this agreement, the Sioux gave up a long strip of land lying along the west bank of the Mississippi, and including some of the northern Missouri and eastern Iowa. Out of the proceeds, we paid several thousand dollars to the Iowa and Oto Indians, who inhabited this country conjointly with us. Next came the treaty, ratified in 1837, by which we parted with all the territory lying in the southern part of Wisconsin, southeastern Minnesota, and northeastern Iowa. For this vast domain the government gave us a few thousand dollars in money and goods, together with many promises, and established for us a trust fund of $300,000, upon which interest at 5% was to be paid forever. This treaty affected only certain bands of the Sioux. In 1851, we ceded another large tract in Iowa and Minnesota, including some of the best agricultural lands in the United States, and for this we were to receive ten cents an acre. Two large trust funds were established for the four bands interested, on which interest at five percent was to be paid annually for fifty years. In addition, the government agreed to furnish schools, farmers, blacksmith shops, etc., for the civilization of the Sioux. Only nine annual payments had been made when there was failure to meet them for two successive years. Much of our game had disappeared. The people were starving. 
and this state of affairs, together with other frauds on the part of the government officials and Indian traders, brought on the frightful Minnesota Massacre in 1862. After this tragedy, many of the Sioux fled into Canada, and the remnant were moved out of the state and onto a new reservation in Nebraska. Furthermore, the remaining annuities due them under the treaty were arbitrarily confiscated as a punishment for the uprising. It was the claim for these lost annuities in particular, together with some minor matters, that the Indians now desired to have adjusted, and for which they sent me to the capital. Now for the first time I seriously studied the machinery of government, and before I knew it I was a lobbyist. I came to Washington with a great respect for our public men and institutions. Although I had had some disillusionizing experiences with a lower type of political henchmen on the reservations, I reasoned that it was because they were almost beyond the pale of civilization, and clothed with supreme authority over a helpless and ignorant people, that they dared do the things they did. Under the very eye of the law and of society, I thought, this could scarcely be tolerated. I was confident that a fair hearing would be granted, and our wrongs corrected without undue delay. I had overmuch faith in the civilized ideal, and I was again disappointed. I made up my mind at the start that I would keep aloof from the shyster lawyers, and indeed I did not expect to need any legal help until the matters should come before the Court of Claims, which could not be until Congress had acted upon it. At that time, and I am told that it is much the same now, an Indian could not do business with the department through his attorney. The officials received me courteously enough and assured me that the matters I spoke of should be attended to, but as soon as my back was turned, they pigeonholed them. After waiting patiently, I would resort to the plan of getting one of the Massachusetts senators, who were my friends, to ask for the papers in the case, and this was generally effective. The bureau chief soon learned that I had studied our treaty agreements and had some ground for any request that I might make. Naturally enough, every northwestern Indian who came to Washington desired to consult me, and many of them had come on account of personal grievances which I could not take up. Complaints of every description came to my ear, not from Indians alone, as some were from earnest white men and women who had served among the Indians and had come up against official graft or abuses. I could not help them much and had to stick pretty closely to my main business. I was soon haunted and pestered by minor politicians and grafters, each of whom claimed that he was the right-hand man of this or that congressman, and that my measure could not pass unless I had the vote of his man. Of course, he expected something in exchange for that vote, or rather the promise of it. Armed with a letter of introduction from one of my staunch eastern senatorial friends, I would approach a legislator, who was a stranger to me, in the hope of being allowed to explain to him the purport of our measure. He would listen a while, and perhaps refer me to someone else. I would call on the man he named, and to my disgust, be met with a demand for a liberal percentage of the whole amount to be recovered. If I refused to listen to this proposal, I would soon find the legislator in question drumming up some objection to the bill, and these tactics would be kept up until we yielded, or made some sort of compromise. My brother John was with me in this work. He is a fine character reader, 
and would often say to me on leaving someone's office, Do not trust that man. He is dishonest. He will not keep his word. I found after many months of effort that political and personal feuds in Congress persistently delayed measures which I had looked upon as only common justice, and two of the injured bands have not received their dues to this day. I appeared from time to time before both House and Senate committees on Indian affairs, and a few cases I carried to the President. In this way I have had personal relations with four Presidents of the United States, Harrison, Cleveland, McKinley, and Roosevelt. At one time, I appeared before the committee of which Senator Allison of Iowa was chairman, on the question of allowing the Sisseton Sioux the privilege of leasing their unused allotments to neighboring farmers, without first referring the agreements to the Secretary of the Interior. The point of the request was that the red tape and long delays that seemed to be inseparable from the system greatly handicapped friendly and honest white farmers in their dealings with the Indians, and as a result, much land lay idle and unbroken. Someone had circulated a rumor that this measure was fathered by one of the South Dakota senators, with the object of securing some fine Indian lands for his constituents. As soon as I heard of this, I asked for a hearing, which was granted, and I told the committee that this was the Indians' own bill, we desire to learn business methods, I said, and we can only do this by handling our own property. You learn by experience to manage your business. How are we Indians to learn if you take from us the wisdom that is born of mistakes, and leave us to suffer the stings of robbery and deception with no opportunity to guard against its recurrence? I know that some will misuse this privilege, and some will be defrauded but the experiment will be worth all its costs. Instead of asking me further questions upon the bill, they asked, Where did you go to school? Why are there not more Indians like you? As I have said, nearly every Indian delegation that came to the capital in those days, and there were many, appealed to me for advice, and often had me go over their business with them before presenting it. I was sometimes with them when they had secured their hearing before the Indian Commissioner or the Committee of Congress, and in this way I heard some interesting speeches. The Ojibways have much valuable pine land, aggregating millions of dollars. Congress had passed an act authorizing a special commissioner to dispose of the lumber for the Indians' benefit, but the new man had not been long in office when it appeared that he was in with large lumber interests. There was general complaint, but as usual, the Indians were only laughed at, for the official was well entrenched behind the influence of the lumber kings and of his political party. At last, the Ojibways succeeded in bringing the matter before the House Committee on Indian Affairs, of which James Sherman of New York was chairman. The chief of the delegation addressed the committee somewhat as follows. You are very wise men, since to you this great nation entrusts the duty of making laws for the whole people. Because of this, we have trusted you, and have hitherto respected the men whom you have sent to manage our affairs. You recently sent one who was formerly of your number to sell our pines, and he is paid with our money, ten thousand dollars a year. It has been proved that he receives money from the lumbermen. He has been underselling all others. We pray you take him away. 
Every day that you allow him to stay, much money melts away, and great forests fall in thunder. Many good speeches lost their effect because of the failure of the uneducated interpreter to render them intelligently. But in this instance, a fine linguist interpreted for the chief, the Reverend James Gilfillan, for many years an Episcopal missionary among the Ojibways, and well acquainted with their language and ways. The old men often amused me by their shrewd comments upon our public men. Old Tom Beveridge was the Indian's hotel keeper. They all knew him, and his house was the regular rendezvous. Some Sioux chiefs who had been to call on President Harrison thus characterized him. Said young man afraid of his horses. He is a man of the old trail. He will never make a new one. White Ghost said, there is strong religious principle in him. Then American Horse spoke up. The missionaries tell us that a man cannot have two masters. Then how can he be a religious man and a politician at the same time? An old chief said of President McKinley, I never knew a white man show so much love for mother and wife. He has a bigger heart than most white men, declared Little Fish, and this is unfortunate for him. The white man is a man of business and has no use for a heart. One day I found a number of the chiefs in the Senate gallery. They observed closely the faces and bearing of the legislators and then gave their verdict. One man they compared to a fish. Another had not the attitude of a true man. That is, he held to oppose. Senator Morgan of Alabama they called a great counselor. Senator Hoare they estimated as a patriotic and just statesman. They picked out Senator Platt of Connecticut as being very cautious and a diplomat. They had much difficulty in judging Senator Tillman, but on the whole they considered him to be a fighting man, governed by his emotions rather than his judgment. Some said he is a loyal friend. Others held the reverse. Senator Turpey of Indiana they took for a preacher and were pleased with his air of godliness and reverence. Senator Fry of Maine they thought must be a rarity among white men, honest to the core. It was John Grass who declared that Grover Cleveland was the bravest white chief he had ever known. The harder you press him, said he, the stronger he stands. Theodore Roosevelt has been well known to the Sioux for over twenty-five years, dating from the years of his ranch life. He was well liked by them as a rule. Spotted Horse said of him, While he talked, I forgot that he was a white man. During Mr. Roosevelt's second administration, there was much disappointment among the Indians. They had cherished hopes of an honest deal, but things seemed to be worse than ever. There were more frauds committed and in the way of legislation the Burke Bill was distinctly a backward step. The Dawes Bill was framed in the interest of the Indians. The Burke Bill was for the grafters. Therefore there was much discouragement. I have been much interested in the point of view of these older Indians. Our younger element has now been so thoroughly drilled in the motives and methods of the white man at the same time losing the old mother and family training through being placed in boarding school from six years of age onward, that they have really become an entirely different race. During this phase of my life I was brought face to face with a new phase of progress among my people of the Dakotas. 
Several of their reservations were allotted in severalty, and the Indians became full citizens and voters. As the population of these new states was still small and scattered, the new voters, although few in number, were of distinct interest to the candidates for office, and their favor was eagerly sought. In some counties, the Indian vote held the balance of power. Naturally, they looked to the best educated men of their race to explain to them the principles and platforms of the political parties. At first, they continued to get together according to old custom, calling a council and giving a preliminary feast, at which two or three steers would be killed for a barbecue. After dinner, the tribal herald called the men together to hear the candidate or his representative. I took active part in one or two campaigns, but they have now a number of able young men who expound politics to them locally. Some persons imagine that we are still wild savages, living on the hunt or on rations. But as a matter of fact, we Sioux are now fully entrenched, for all practical purposes, in the warfare of civilized life. End of chapter 10